You're listening to Radio Diaries. This is Joe. And I'm excited to tell you about the newest show in the Radiotopia family. It's called The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. I'm sure a lot of you listen to podcasts while cooking. Well, The Recipe is the podcast that will teach you how to be a better cook with tips from two seasoned pros, pun intended. Hosted by Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Walk and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen, The Recipe not only lets you learn new recipes, but also teaches you techniques and secret ingredients that will up your cooking from just okay to restaurant quality. So welcome them to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Radio Diaries is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Radiotopia. From PRX. From PRX's Radiotopia, this is Radio Diaries. I'm Joe Richman. In June of 1921, a new voice was heard on record players around the country. Ethel Waters was a young black singer who was making a name for herself in the cabaret circuit during the Harlem Renaissance. You may have heard of Ethel Waters, but you probably haven't heard of the man who recorded her first songs and turned her into a star. His name was Harry Pace, and a hundred years ago, he launched the first major black-owned record company in the United States. On today's show, we're telling the history of a groundbreaking company and of a black man who set out to uplift his community through music. It's also the story of a mystery about Harry Pace and identity and the reasons he may have been forgotten. This is the rise and fall of Black Swan Records. Test, one, two. Okay. My name is Peter Pace. I'm the grandson of Harry Herbert Pace. Harry Pace was a man of confidence. I mean, he had a shrewd business sense and entrepreneurial instincts. He was very politically active. He was the first president of the Atlanta NAACP. But he also had an artistic side, collaborated with W.C. Handy, self-professed father of the blues. And shortly thereafter, uh, in 1921, Harry Pace started Black Swan Records. So Harry Herbert Pace not only had style, but a sophistication. He was an extremely dapper dresser. My name is Emmett G. Price III, executive editor of the Encyclopedia of African American Music. The Harlem Renaissance is happening, and artists of color are making incredible music at this point. It's just the avenues that they have to sell that music, it's it's very limited. My name is Rhiannon Giddens, and I'm a musician and a history nerd. My name is Willie Ruff. I am a musician and professor emeritus at Yale University. Harry Pace saw that there was profit to be made by black people producing and distributing 
music for black people. He said, if they're not going to record us, then we need to record us. So let's do it. He already has a phenomenal team, but he needs a superstar. So we're in 1921. Harry walks into a bar in Harlem called Edmund's Cellar. This place is small. Folks are jammed in elbow to elbow, smoke all over the place. And he sees on the stage this beautiful black woman, Ethel Waters. The other night, he left that night. She was known as Sweet Mama String Bean. She was tall, elegant, she could dance, she could sing. She was unlike the, the usual blues singers. She was not a shouter. Her voice, her sophistication, when Ethel Waters sings, she is the oxygen in the room. Hi, this is Ethel Waters. And she, in her own words, told me about recording for Black Swan Records. And they had this little office on 139th Street down in the basement. So Mr. Pace, very nice, friendly man, and very dignified, he said, would you come and make a test recording? So I said, well, it won't do no harm. <laughs> I never felt so lonesome before. This number that they had was the down-home blues. So when they put it out, it was an instant sensation, and it got Black Swan Records off the hip. Woke up this morning, the day was dawning, and I was feeling all and What you hear in all of those old records is primitive. This was before the invention of the microphone. It wasn't anything electric in the whole deal. They had to do that in the recording studio with a megaphone. Everything was wind up. This is from an article in the Chicago Defender, uh, May 7th in 1921. News of the completion of the first list of Black Swan records will be received with great interest and enthusiasm by our people all over the United States. A great uproar was caused among white phonograph record companies who resent the idea of having a race company enter what they felt was an exclusive field. My name is David Sussman, and I wrote a book called Selling Sounds, The Commercial Revolution in American Music. For almost all of the Black Swan artists, this is their first time in a recording studio. Black Swan records had almost an embarrassment of talent on their rosters. They had Alberta Hunter, who was a great songwriter and singer of jazz, early jazz. Then you have Fletcher Henderson. The jazz big band was his creation. He was the architect of that sound. They've got a lot of talent. <laughs> They've got it all. But then we have class divisions within black culture, which is something that people <laughs> like to forget. So there's an old story <laughs> of Harry Pace and this phenomenal vocalist, Bessie Smith. 
Bessie Smith came in to audition for Harry Pace and Black Swan Records. She was in the middle of singing and spit onto the floor uh, in the middle of her performance and kept on going as if nothing had happened. And Harry Pace took a pass on her. The implication was she didn't belong on the Black Swan label with its higher cultural ambitions. You got to stop that fighting on Sunday. This was not just about making money. This is also about two generations out of slavery that we are taking up our rightful mantle and uplifting the race. Harry Pace studied with W.E.B. Du Bois at Atlanta University, and there Du Bois taught about his talented 10th concept, where the community invests in the most gifted or talented, and there will be a trickle-down economically, socially, politically, and culturally. And so in many ways, Harry Pace... That was what drove him. As he begins to build up Black Swan Records, he invites Du Bois to serve on the board of directors. This is a letter from W.E.B. Du Bois in 1921. He writes, Mr. Pace has made an excellent beginning. I've known him for years, and he is not only efficient, but absolutely honest and reliable. I'm very much interested in Mr. Pace's attempt to put phonograph records on the market. Harry Pace wants a company that will record all kinds of music, not just blues and jazz, but also opera records and classical music. I mean, you had William Grant Steele, known to this day as the Dean of Afro-American Composers. And then you, you have Ravella Hughes, one of the first recordings of a black classically trained soprano. Black Swan also recorded spirituals and the sacred songs. Having a full range of styles on the label was part of the label's DNA. One of the most visionary things that Harry Pace did was to record Lift Every Voice and Sing, the Negro National Anthem, the first recording of this historic song. First year, they sold over $100,000 in records and established a network throughout the whole country. They were definitely on the map. It was, a, it was a great moment. It provided opportunity for black audiences to hear the music of their people, and it provided an opportunity for the artists to be heard. I'm proud every time I hear something like that with that kind of originality that says something about who we are as a people. We're picking up the story of Black Swan Records in late 1921. Harry Pace's biggest star, Ethel Waters, has released her hit record, Down Home Blues, and he sends her on a national tour to promote the album. Here's part two of The Rise and Fall of Black Swan Records. 1921, Black Swan's first real tour with Ethel Waters and the 
troubadours. I hit 53 cities. They advertised in the Chicago Defender, the Amsterdam News, Baltimore African American, Pittsburgh Courier. Harry Pace wanted to do something that nobody else was doing at that time. They're going to tour not only the North, but they're going to tour down South. For a black band, this was extremely dangerous. Violence, lynchings. Many of his band members actually quit. Some of the Northern blacks decided that they were not going to take the risk. This tour was a challenge, and yet they made this thing work. The Troubadours was such a big hit that the white newspaper, the New Orleans Daily, decided to have a special radio appearance with its partner station WVG, where they had Ethel Waters sing, which many historians suggest that she was the first black woman to sing live on U.S. radio. This was huge. I'm going down to the levee where the water's heavy. Production was going through the roof and the sales were going through the roof. It looked like he was on the road to success. The Chicago Defender, December 24th, 1921, and it says Ethel Waters has signed a unique contract with Harry H. Pace, makes her now the highest salaried colored phonograph star in the country. Miss Waters' contract stipulates that she is not to marry for at least a year. It was due to numerous offers of marriage, <laughs> many of her suitors suggesting that she give up her professional life at once for domesticity, that Mr. Pace was prompted to make this step. <laughs> I ain't gonna marry, I ain't going to settle down. Because the man I love is Alabama bound. In 1921, for a black label in New York, it took tenacity, grit, and the ability to just stick in there. I can't even imagine the absolute hill that you had to climb if you were a person of color. Every time you walked into an office, you walked into a bank, you walked into a store, you walked into anywhere that was owned by white culture, you were at a deficit as soon as you walked in the door. Down in my heart, there lies a stream of misery. My daddy left, and in Black Swan bought this recording and pressing company in Long Island City in the hopes of becoming more autonomous and not relying on white-owned pressing facilities. But Black Swan was saddled with debt. I have in my hand a letter from Harry Pace to the board of directors of Black Swan Records. Greetings. During the past few months, conditions have been developing in the industry which have made our work unusually hard. We have been the target of attack from our competitors. Desire seems to be that we must be put out of business by any means, fair or foul. There were threats to him physically. 
There was even a, a threat that they were going to put a bomb in his studio in his basement. When the culture at large saw there was money to be made, game was over. The white recording studios, they have the, the muscle, they have the backing, they have the money. Companies like Paramount begin pulling the artists away from Black Swan. The poaching begins. Fletcher Henderson, Trixie Smith, and Alberta Hunter all leave the label. Finally, Ethel Waters leaves too. He had grown fond of Ethel. He knew that she was an economic engine. And to Harry Pace, this is a huge challenge. He has one more trick up his sleeve. With the purchase of the pressing plant in Long Island City, he had access to a cache of other recordings by white artists, which he could then issue basically for free. He begins to release a number of records by white artists. <laughs> and he begins to pass them as black. The Palm Beach Society Orchestra gets passed as Fred Smith's Society Orchestra. The white stage singer named Elaine Stanley became, on Black Swan, Mamie Jones. It's so kind of crazy and ludicrous, given the company's mission, that I think Harry Pace would have only done it under duress. He was trying to figure out, how do I get myself out of this hole? And it doesn't work. Gentlemen, you men ought to know how bitterly disappointed I must have been that Black Swan was not the success I had hoped it would be. I want you to know that I have not lost confidence in the proposal, nor in myself. Sincerely, Harry H. Pace. Now, he was enough of a businessman to read the tea leaves, and he saw when things were going south. After two and a half years, it was over. The last record they released was Ethel Sings em by Ethel Waters. Black Swan sold its recordings to the Paramount, which was a white company, and that was it. For Harry Pace, Black Swan represented the end of a, a chapter in his life. I don't know what, what happened to Pace. He left New York, and, and I don't know whatever happened to him. All right, what I'm looking at here is the uh, population schedule or the census from 1930. Harry Pace is the head of the household. You have a uh, wife, Ethelyn, Josephine, and uh, Harry Jr. They were all in the household. In the right-hand column next to each name are the letters N-E-G. And if you look at the 1940 census, You'll see that in that same column, there are W's for white. This, this is our grandfather right here, you know. So what happened in that 10 years? Growing up, I identified as white. I was never told I was anything else but white until relatively recently. 
when I was 62 years old, we found out that Harry Pace was African-American and who he was and what he did. Even as he left New York, left the music industry, moves into insurance, Pace continued to be a race man. He's still actively engaged in the black movement, but yet at home, privately, his family lived as if they were not black. He looked like a white man. <laughs> he, he could pass as white and probably did all his life. Those people don't go around with a sign on their back that says, I'm black. Would you? I don't know what his situation was, and you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pass judgment until I walked a mile in his shoes. My grandfather died on July 19th, 1943. He was 59 years old. I think in the annals of history, he's been forgotten. But Harry Pace gave us a blueprint that other labels after Black Swan used whether it's Motown Records, whether it's Stax Records, whether it's Philadelphia International Records, a Black-owned, Black-operated music business that focused on Black artistry. William Grant Steele, Fletcher Henderson, Ethel Waters. These artists that Harry Pace recorded ended up changing the sound of America. So if Harry Pace felt that Black Swan Records was a failure, he was wrong. The people you heard in the story were Rhiannon Giddens, Peter Pace, Emmett Price III, Willie Ruff, and David Seussman. Our story of Black Swan Records was produced by Nellie Gillis with help from me. It was edited by Deborah George and Ben Shapiro, who also mixed the stories. Thanks also to producers Elisa Escarce and Micah Hazel. Radio Diaries has support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, National Endowment for the Arts, and the Lily Auchincloss Foundation. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. A special thank you to journalist Paul Slade for his book, Black Swan Blues. And thanks to Mark Beresford and Bill Doggett for sharing the collections of rare Black Swan records. You can find links to the book and music from this episode on our website, radiodiaries.org. I'm Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries. Thanks for listening. Radio Tokyo.